as we gather together on the Lord's Day, as we partake in communion, what are we doing? We're looking back to Christ's first coming. We're looking back to Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. But we're also looking forward, and what are we doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We're proclaiming that until he returns at his second coming. But throughout this time and this Advent season, it really does provide an opportunity to hone in and focus in on remembering and reflecting on Christ's Advent. And with many churches around the globe, uh, part of that tradition is really looking at at four themes, looking at uh, hope, looking at joy, at peace, and at love. And so for the next few weeks at Alpine, that will be our focus as well. We'll be looking at uh, uh, various passages that are highlighting these different areas. This morning, we'll be looking at hope. In particular, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, we're going to be in verses 8 through 13. So if you're there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. And I'm going to give you the main point at the very beginning, that Christ, we see, is the hope of Israel, and he is the hope of the nations. So there, I'll read for us, beginning of verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, it's important to understand the situational context of this passage. Where is this set at within the larger scope of Romans? See, right before this, Paul is concluding his exhortation to the church to be united, that they are to be united together. And then in verse 8, Paul concludes this and shows why the church should be united, why there should be unity within the church. They should pursue unity within the church because now Christ has came for both the Jew and for the Gentile. That they are together now as one body. Christ has come as the hope for both the Israel and the hope for the nations. That is why there should be unity within the body. He is displayed, he is the hope of Israel by displaying God's truthfulness to the promises to the patriarchs. And he is the hope of the nations by displaying his mercy towards the Gentiles. That's what we see right in our passage in Romans. Now, we're going to first look at how God, how Christ displays God's truthfulness uh, to the promises to the patriarchs. And we're looking at these promises to the patriarchs. I believe what Paul has in mind here is both the Abrahamic covenant, the promises to Abraham, but also the promises to David. We see that later on in the verse that Paul is citing there. So we're seeing here that it's using both the covenant of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And these promises are ultimately realized in the long-awaited Messiah, the one that Israel is waiting for. So we're going to do is we're going to work our way through looking at these various covenants and see how they're pointing their way towards Christ as well. Looking at Genesis chapter 1. No, Genesis chapter 12. There we go. There we go. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking at throughout Genesis the unveiling of this Abrahamic covenant. 
In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, we see the initial proclamation of this covenant with Abraham. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see here in the initial proclamation of the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abraham that God would bless him, and through him, all the nations of the earth, they would be blessed. He then continues on in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, 3 through 5, we see a continual progressive unveiling of what this covenant entails. God is confirming to Abraham that he will have an heir, and this heir will be his very son, not some other relative. In verse 3, it says this, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Then in Genesis 17, Verses 6 through 19, God reveals that this covenant with Abraham will be extended through his offspring, through Isaac. In Genesis 17, 6 through 19, it says this, And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and, your, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Then jumping down to verse 19, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Then again, we see in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God is ratifying this covenant to the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, it says this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then continuing on in Genesis 26. In Genesis 26, God confirms this covenant will be extended through Isaac's offspring. Verse 3, uh, verses 3 through 5. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to your offspring all the lands. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my law. Then finally in Genesis 28, in Genesis 28 verses 13 and 14, we see that God confirms the covenant will be extended even through Jacob's offspring as well. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give you, and you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We see in the Abrahamic covenant that God promised for the offspring of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, that through them, all the nations of the earth, they would be blessed. So what was part of this blessing that was promised? It was redemption that was promised back in the garden. Recall back in Genesis, the very beginning in Genesis 3, 
Now we see upon the fall of man where God makes this initial promise, this initial covenant. In verse 15 of chapter 3, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is sometimes referred to as the first gospel, as the the proto-evangelium, that God promised Adam and Eve, that offspring of Adam and Eve would come and conquer, that he would provide redemption from the curse of sin and death. This promised redeemer is fully realized in the promised offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that this promised one would come through the vessel that is Israel. So we're seeing here the, the layout of this Abrahamic covenant. Now let's shift gears over to the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David. Of, of the covenant of David. Not only were the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant, they were also made with David as well. We fast forward through Genesis, and we see this continual progressive revelation, the concept of who the Messiah ultimately is going to be. He not only would redeem, but this Messiah would also reign. He would not only just redeem, he would also reign. Consider Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, this passage, Jacob is laying out uh, blessings for his sons. And this passage in particular, we're seeing the blessing that he is bestowing upon Judah. Starting in verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We see in this prophecy a pronouncement of Judah's preeminence among the peoples. We see that there's the expectation that there would come an offspring from Judah that would reign over Israel. We fast forward and we see later in Israel's history where David, from the line of Judah, he ascends to the throne of Israel as God's anointed king. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, we see where God institutes this Davidic covenant, this covenant with David. In verse 11, it says, Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, in this Davidic covenant, God is promising to establish an everlasting kingdom for the offspring of David. As to one who reigns over Israel, and Israel being the vessel of God's promises to the nations, it was believed that this son of David would be the Messiah. He will, bring, he will be the one that will bring about the promised redemption for all. And while there are certainly descendants of David that sat upon the throne, the promise is not fully realized in any of those uh, temporary individuals. We see ultimately where Israel falls, that Israel is divided. Israel goes into exile. But 
all of these individuals are types and shadows that are pointing forward towards the true son of David, the true offspring of David who was to come. Then we fast forward all the way to 2 Kings. Then in 2 Kings chapter 25, we see that despite the failings of Israel and the failings of its kings, that while the promises of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the promises to David seem to be impossible, there is still this glimmer of hope. There's still hope that there might be a king that would come, an offspring, the son of David that would come. It starts with this in verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. If you recall, a while back we had Terry Isles here who led a conference uh, going through the, the Hebrew scriptures. And one thing that he pointed out within this passage was that this passage helped to provide a launching pad to the continuation that there was still the anticipation that the son of David would come, that the son of Abraham would come, that the promises of Israel would still be fulfilled, that through this law there would still come one who would fulfill these promises and redeem Israel. They're still waiting in anticipation. So it brings it back to our passage in Romans. The hope of Israel was the promise of redemption. Generations, they were poised in eager anticipation, waiting for the fulfillment of these promises to their patriarchs. The promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the promises to David. And we see that ultimately the New Testament, that Christ fulfills these promises. Consider in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we see that Mary, after she is told that she will be with child, that she is linking all this, all her praise, she is linking it back to these patriarchal promises when she says this, that as he, as God, spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She recognized that the child she was carrying was the one who would fulfill the promises to Israel's patriarchs. Considering the gospel of Matthew, the words proclaimed to Joseph, to Mary's husband. It says in verse 21 of chapter 1, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There was a recognition that Jesus would bring redemption for Israel. Consider the words in the gospel of Luke, chapter 1, the prophecy of Zechariah. Verses 68 through 75, it says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke with the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's the realization that Jesus is the culmination, the promises made to David, to the promises that were made to Abraham. And then later in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 16, we see that uh, Paul is reiterating that Jesus is this promised offspring of Abraham. 
It says this, now the promised one or the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say in the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Then even in the genealogy of Jesus that we see laid out in Matthew in the very beginning of the New Testament, we see this link of Jesus being the fulfillment of these covenants. In Matthew 1.1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we know from Scripture that Jesus, that Christ fulfilled these promises through his sinless life, through his sacrificial death, through his resurrection from the dead, that those who repented of their sins, those who followed after Christ as king, those who have faith in him, that they were redeemed, which is what this Messiah was coming to bring, was to bring about redemption. See, Christ is the hope of Israel because he displayed God's truthfulness to the promises, to the patriarchs, by bringing about redemption. He made redemption possible for Israel for those who have faith in him. He is not only the hope of Israel, but he is also the hope of the nations. Consider Paul's words, earlier words in Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then jumping down to verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is by the mercy of God that we Gentiles, that we have been grafted in to these patriarchal promises, that we who were once far off have now been brought near. But this story of redemption, this promise of redemption for the Gentiles wasn't something unheard of. It wasn't some mystery that's never been told. Instead, the entire Old Testament was pointing towards this, showing where there was to be redemption even for the Gentiles through God's mercy. See, in our passage in Romans, Paul is using four citations. He's referring to four different passages in the Old Testament to make his case, to make his argument. The first one we see is in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 50, Paul is referencing this. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. This verse is situated within the larger context of a song of David, and by extension, a song of the whole of Israel, nearly identical to Psalm 18. And in this, what we're seeing is a recounting of God's promise to save, to redeem Israel, and by extension, that this would serve as a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, that they would be drawn in to worship this same Messiah as well. Next, Paul turns to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32, it says this in verse 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And what Paul is doing is he's linking back to the larger context, help you see what else is going on in this passage. See, that verse is situated within a song of Moses. So we've had a song of David, now we have a song of Moses. And by extension as well, the, the song of Israel. And again, it's recounting. They're singing praise to God for his redemption and drawing in the Gentiles to praise God with the Jews. And then Paul turns to Psalm 117. And in Psalm 117, it says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. 
and faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We're seeing here where the Gentiles, separate from the Jews, that they are offering up praise to this God of Israel. These Gentiles are giving praise to the one true God. And then lastly, we see where Paul turns to Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.10, we see it says this, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Paul concludes his argument by linking it all back to this promise of the long-awaited Messiah. Promises that the one would come. The reference to the root of Jesse is clearly a reference to David, Jesse's son. A reference to the Davidic covenant, which we can understand is encompassing as well the Abrahamic covenant. It is in this root, in this one, the Messiah, that the nations would inquire. It is in this Messiah that the nations would seek. The one whom the nations would hope. The Messiah is the one who will bring hope to the nations. And these four passages, these four verses that Paul is citing aren't just four random citations that he's pulling from the Old Testament. Instead, he's using very critical verses to build his case. In fact, he's pulling from what the Jews were referred to as the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's pulling verses from the law, from the prophets, and from the writings. And not just that, he's pulling quotes from key figures in in the life of Israel. He's pulling from the author, Moses. Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, he's pulling from King David. He's pulling from the prophet Isaiah. These are key critical figures in the life of Israel that he is using to build his argument, support his position, that Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he brought about redemption, that he is the one who is the hope of the nations by displaying mercy to the Gentiles. This is the plan of God from the very beginning by instituting these promises to see Jews rejoicing in God's truthfulness, to see Gentiles rejoicing over God's mercy. This is why Christ is the hope of nations and the hope of Israel. So what does all this mean for us today? Yes, Christ is the hope of Israel, the hope of nations. What we see in verse 13, where Paul says this, may the God of hope, Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Jesus brought hope to Israel. He brought hope to the nations. He brings hope to you and to me. In this benediction, Paul is exhorting the believers to abound in hope. What are we hoping for? What are we longing for? What is our anticipation? We see in Hebrews 9, it says this. 9, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Christ's first advent, he brought about redemption. In his second advent, he will bring about restoration for those who have faith in him, those who have been hoping in him. Friend, is that your hope? Do you long for the day when Christ will come again? If you are not a follower of Christ, then I implore you, repent of your sin. Place your hope in him. Follow after him. Let's consider the words in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, it says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, 
about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him to those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. They jump down to verse 5 of chapter 5. For you all are children of the light, children of the day. We are not the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We should long for, we should be eagerly anticipating the day when Christ will come again, whether in his return or whether in our death, we have been united with him through faith. We will be with him forever. Is that your hope? Do you recognize that is your hope? Amen. Hope in Christ's second coming is not, also, not only for the future, but hope is also for today. We can live today knowing that God is with us. As Kevin mentioned last week, that every believer right now is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead dwells within every believer right now. See, we have been saved from the penalty of sin and Christ's redemption. We know that one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But right now we are being saved from the power of sin through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that we have the power to wage war against sin, to forsake our sin and pursue righteousness. It's because we have the Holy Spirit with us right now. We have the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do these things right now, today, that we are empowered. We not only have this empowerment to forsake sin, to wage war against it, but we are also, this hope should affect our posture that we have towards others. It should affect our posture towards believers and towards unbelievers as well. Consider Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verses 4 through 5, it says this. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. You read our passage this morning in Romans chapter 15. At the end of verse 13, it says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. As we abound in this hope that Paul is referring to, God fills us with joy, with peace, and with love. And these are things that we'll be examining over the next few weeks here at Alpine, but this future hope should affect our present posture as we encourage and as we edify the body and as we go about evangelizing the lost, it should have an effect on us today, not just our future realities. As we conclude our time this morning, I want to encourage you with the words of Paul. 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit to abound in hope. Be encouraged by the reality that Christ is our hope in life and in death, that Christ is the hope of Israel, that hope that Christ is the hope of the nations. That as we are celebrating this Advent season, as we are celebrating Christ's first Advent, his first coming, that we would be anxiously awaiting his second coming. That these words that I'm about to read that we see in Revelation, that these words would be our words that we are reminded by and we repeat day by day. In Revelation chapter 22, Revelation 22, it says this, starting in verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the waters of the life without price. And in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Churches, we are in this Advent season as we are looking forward to Christ's second Advent, his second coming. Are these your words? Can you exclaim with the words we see here in Revelation? Can we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let that be our cry here at Alpine, that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come.